Welcome to the New Books Network. Most people in developed countries think inequality is increasing, and most would also agree that in terms of the global poor, the last 20 years have seen vast improvements, with hundreds of millions living much better lives than their parents. These are some of the themes that have been addressed by Professor Mike Savage in his book The Return of Inequality, Social Change and the Weight of the Past. So welcome to you. Nice, nice to talk to you. And do you think it's right that in Western countries anyway, more and more attention is being paid to inequality? Yes, over the last 10 years, I think inequality has emerged as, as one of the major themes. And much of my book is trying to explore the argument that you know, we, we know climate change is, a, is, a, is a, in a state of crisis. Inequality, I think, is the second major systemic crisis the globe faces. But we currently don't see inequality in the same way as we see climate change. So kind of trying to think through how we address that and how we make our understanding of inequality systemic and you know, reflect upon the challenges it poses to contemporary societies. And in terms of your analysis of, of when it became you know, such a big crisis, as you put it, then if you give us the post-war period, wh- you know, wh- when do you think things change from a progress towards greater equality to a movement towards greater inequality? Well, obviously it varies between different parts of the world and different countries, but in the in the rich world, you know, most rich countries in Europe, North America, uh, Australasia, and such like, I mean, they they during the 1970s in particular uh, had reached fairly low levels of inequality in historical perspective, often due to high taxation rates and you know um, a, a promise and a commitment to the welfare state. And then, really, since that period in the richer world, in the richer world certainly, we've seen a big increase of inequality. It, it, it is variable. So the US has seen a big rise of inequality. UK has less marked in some European nations. In those societies which were previously communist, like Russia and China, or were previously very poor, like India, there's been an increase in living standards in general. But that's also come along with you know high levels of inequality. And then also in, in societies in Africa and, and South America, there's been variable patterns. South America is interesting because it's the one part of the world where historically very high levels of inequality, actually during the post-Second World War period. And there have been some interesting challenges to that in the last two decades. So I, I, the, the picture I want to portray is not one that is inevitable. We have seen important variability across the, across the world, but it's pretty systemic in the richer countries, certainly. And it's something we need to think about very seriously. And greater variability over time, because you're saying up to the 70s, you know, it was different. So so what what changed then? What, what actually happened to the 70s? A, a major driver of the trends has been what some people perhaps helpfully call neoliberal, ne- neoliberal currents and capitalist growth, in which growing attention to market-based solutions to, to welfare policies I'm really interested in the book pushes the argument that a big driver of inequality is to do with the rise of wealth inequality. And by talking about wealth inequality, we mean inequality bound up with assets, you know, assets you can sell or assets you can value. So things like, you know, owner occupied housing, your savings, your financial instruments like stocks and shares and such like these. The amount of wealth in the world has has massively increased in the last 40 years because we live in a a capitalist society, which is really geared towards, you know, um, asset acquisition and wealth accumulation, and that's gone hand in hand with, uh, in many countries, most countries, privatisation of the state sector in many industrial areas, 
changing nature of the welfare state, more um, market-oriented welfare solutions, getting rid of universal entitlements, all these shifts have led to uh, the, the wealth inequality becoming more significant. And this may sound, you know, a, a sort of um, a particular, you know, quite specific shift in the nature of inequality. But for me, you know, wealth inequality is really, really important because income inequality, that is to say inequality between people who get paid a lot and get paid much less, is, is, has, has also gone up in many countries. But you can justify income inequality in terms of notions of meritocracy or human capital. You know, some people who are doing more difficult jobs or have got more training, you know, you can justify them having higher salaries. Now, you may want to say, well, it doesn't justify the extent of the pay differential. But nonetheless, there's an argument there saying there's a liberal principle that you know there should be some link between the nature of your job and your skill level and how much you get paid. When it comes to wealth inequality, that is to say inequality bound up with asset acquisition, it's difficult to use those liberal justifications because much wealth inequality is unearned. Much of it is inherited from parents and from family members. Much of it is to do with rent. You know, if, you, if you're renting out houses, then you're drawing upon income, which just uh, testifies to your ownership of property. So as we're moving to a society in which wealth inequality is a really, really significant thing, it's creating a class of people who can rely upon these assets, which, to be frank, don't necessarily demonstrate great enterprise or skill or merit from them versus many, many people who don't have access to wealth, to those wealth assets, but they're also experiencing a less security than they would have done in the past. So it is leading to forms of polarization, which are having quite serious structural effects in, you know, in dividing people into, into different camps. And so I, what I try and do in the book is I try and draw the links between those structural changes to do with the rise of wealth inequality and what's happening in the world of politics and also in people's sense of, of um, identity. And I try to make the argument really that we're, we're seeing a society now in many, many nations, most nations in which elites have a lot more economic resources, but, that, but by having those resources, they no longer really have to think about the public sector or about you know, using the welfare state and that's making them much more distant to the concerns and the feelings and the values of their fellow citizens. So it's actually influencing uh, the entrenched political divides which we're seeing across the world. I guess a lot of the attention that has been put on this issue of inequality and inherited wealth that you describe has dealt with you know, the 1%. There was that whole movement about the 1%. But to what degree is it the 1%? I mean, that's a glaring inequality that may may have significant social you know, harms. But under Thatcher in the UK and with the American dream in the US, more and more not very, you know, not fantastically wealthy families were becoming owner-occupiers, right? So of the wealth that's, that's passed down the generations, how much of it, of it is, you know, modestly wealthy families rather than crazily wealthy? Yeah, no, it's an important point. And of course, the 1% are very powerful and they, they have taken the lion's share in many respects of the increase of wealth inequality. But there is also a, a, a kind of a bigger middle class group, which is a group which isn't necessarily super elite, wouldn't necessarily be in the top 1%, but they do very comfortably in terms of, you know, if you're living in London and you have a professional job and you've bought your house 30 or 40 years ago, chances are you're living in a million pounds of property or more. Um, so that is absolutely right, that we need to we need to bear in mind, we're not talking about a kind of um, a small 
easily defined 1% elite class is much more complex than that. And that these the, the wealth inequality percolates down into larger sections, larger segments of the um, economic distribution, if you like. However, uh, in most societies, we should bear in mind that, that, that we're still talking about 20, 30% of the top, you know, the most privileged people. We, we're not talking about most people. So even in the UK, you know, uh, own occupation, which had increased under Margaret Thatcher, has actually declined a bit. And uh, many owner occupiers also have high mortgage, or have, have to have high mortgages. And so they're struggling a bit. So we need to be quite discriminating um, in terms of um, understanding how these wealth dynamics are shaping different kinds of people. But I think it's also the case, um, even in rich countries, even in the US and UK and many European countries, that a substantial number of people, we're talking about you know, probably over half, really have very little uh, tangible wealth to fall back on. You know, a lot of people still rent and uh, don't have much in terms of savings. And in that situation, even if you've got a decent job, even if you've got a professional job and you're well qualified and you're getting a decent salary for now, I think the interesting implication is you still feel precarious. It could still all go pear-shaped pretty quickly if you lose your job. So it's creating, I think, for people who are less advantaged, a sense of being vulnerable and being insecure, which is feeding through into people's perceptions and political um, outlooks. Yeah, that'd be a useful number to have. What what percentage of people in, in any society inherit nothing? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I haven't got the I haven't got the answer in front of me. But probably around half, you're thinking. But, well, I'm thinking about over half don't have any any significant wealth um, assets of their own. Now, of course, some people would have wealth assets which they have accumulated by savings and by business enterprise and so forth. So I think, you know, um, I, I think it's between a quarter and a third probably are some kind of inheritors. But it's growing up rapidly, of course. This this, pro, this is a process of um, inheritance, which for those born 50, 60, 70 years ago, it, was less, it wasn't that significant. But as wealth inequality increases, and as that wealth is increasingly ta- has been taken by older people who've had the chance to acquire it over their lifetimes, they're now dying and they're leaving it to their kids. So it's becoming a more significant feature of, of social life. And it will become so over time, even more so. So, yeah, it's, it's less than half now. But as, as time goes on, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be more than that. Yeah. And this issue of inheritance, I mean, do you have an objection to it in itself? Or do you, I mean, for instance, if you thought 100% of people were inheriting, you know, and then there was a equality in wealth or much greater equality in wealth and and virtually everyone was benefiting from it. Would you have a problem with it still? So one of the things I floated in my book at the end when I talk about well, what is to be done, you know, how do we address it, is, is uh, going back to the issue about having a wealth tax. So we do have an inheritance tax, which actually is, isn't very popular. In the UK, we have an inheritance tax that varies across different parts of the world. So I'm actually I'm not sure that inheritance tax is the right way to go because an inheritance tax focuses focus on the, the moment of the transmission of the estate from the person who's died to the new generation and a one-off payment. But I do think the debate about the wealth tax is is, is really, really important. And the debate about the wealth tax is that um, there, there are ways, and some countries do this, they find a way of assessing how much wealth asset different people have and they would be developing a, an annual taxation rate, which may be a one-off tax, where it could be you know, a, um, a small tax applied each year. And even though this wealth tax could be applied at quite small percentages can have a massive impact because such is the level and the nature of and the extent of wealth inequality so my colleagues at the LSE 
Andy Summers and Aaron Advani, who's an economist at Warwick, uh, organised this wealth tax commission in the UK a couple of years ago, and they they developed a programme around what would a wealth tax involve. One of the scenarios they had was having a one-off wealth tax, a kind of an emergency wealth tax to deal with COVID and to deal with a current crisis, which I think was only set at a threshold of a million pounds. Anyone with less than a million pounds in wealth, which is the vast majority of people, would pay no tax. And then, and then over a million pounds, you'd be taxed. Um, it's about, I, think, I think they proposed 5% over five years. So people are keeping 95% of their wealth. This isn't, you know, they're still keeping the vast majority of their assets. But that, the money raised from that wealth tax, from memory, was around £260 billion. Massive amount of money. And to me, that's a kind of no-brainer because it's a vast amount of money which would, you know, having this current crisis about the healthcare, about healthcare, social care, um, and such like in the UK, this would, this kind of resource would be a major way of addressing it. We have, we, you know, we, we've got to think creatively and altruistically about if we are fortunate enough to have a significant amount of wealth, as I say, over a million pounds they were talking about in the UK, we should, we should be prepared to think, well, I've done well, um, and we ne- and I need to think creatively and altruistically about letting other people benefit from this from this wealth. And you can still do that and keep most of the wealth you have. And when you thought that through on that proposal of having, uh, let's say, five percent of everything over a million as a one-off tax, what was the negative on that? Did you did, could you see any reasons against it? So the, one of the arguments against it is to do with the, the difficulty of, of administering it. Um, you know, how do you actually measure? How do you actually find out what people's wealth assets are? Because you know, if you, when we currently do our income tax returns, it's, uh, it's not that's not asked about. I think that that's not that difficult. You know, it's not that difficult to value people's houses and find ways of getting people to to, to give an account of how much they have in the way of stocks and shares and things. So that's that's kind of manageable. It's an argument about some people are wealth or asset rich but cash poor. That's one of the arguments, which is to do with you know, you can imagine people who perhaps have retired and they're living in a big house which they own. Could be worth a million or even more than that, but they don't necessarily have a lot of income coming in. That can be dealt with though simply by making allowances. So if if that is the case, that people don't actually have much cash, you can defer paying the wealth tax. And certainly one of the issues in, in many countries, including the UK, is that for many better off people, a major part of their wealth is to do with their pension funds. But you know, you, if you're not near retirement age, you can't you know you can't easily pay 1% of that or 5% of that in a um, payment in any one year. But again, that can be deferred to retirement. So if, if, if there's a will to, to tackle these things, I think all the administrative issues can be dealt with. Now, then, would you say, I think it's one of the points in your book that, let's say up to the 70s, most of the focus of public policy in the West again was on the poor and the potential benefits of welfare state arrangements. And then that since then, there's been a much tighter focus on the rich. Do you, do you think that's, that's right? Yeah, look, I think the, the focus of, of social policy in most countries and indeed globally has been to lift people out of poverty. And obviously poverty is defined in different ways in different countries. And it's increasing emphasis since we've seen the Sustainable Development Goals and the Millennium Development Goals to think about global poverty levels. And they've been very impressive. On the face of it, incredibly impressive shifts in the number of people who are in absolute poverty across the world so you know major improvements in um, Asia and parts of Africa parts of South America in a way I think the focus has shifted from 
from raising poverty. And I think we still tend to, li to live with the notion that if we can only lift the living standards of people who are in the most underprivileged positions, then we're getting better. And of course, that is absolutely true. I mean, and, and I'm very supportive of the idea we need to keep thinking about how to improve people's lives who are in, in situations of poverty. How have we defined that? But what I'm also want to really bring the focus on is to say, but we should also need, we need to recognize that the rich also need to be the subject of analysis. Why, why should we be concerned with the rich? It's not just to do with that. It's not to do with envy, really, or, you know, saying, you know, yeah resentment you know we want to take away your your resources because it's not fair that you've got them and we haven't got them i don't think it's about that really it, it is more systemic it's to do with the fact that when you get elites who are so wealthy and they can buy on through private services everything they need whether it's healthcare or transportation you know we know all these things about private jets and all that then it is creating a class of people who have removed themselves from the public sphere and from thinking about the, the of public governments, the nation state, if you like, is something which we all have share. We all have a share in. The late Sir John Hills, who I used to collaborate with at the LSE before his sad premature death, and he said, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you look at the UK welfare state, which remains impressive for all the problems, and he was saying, but we should, and there's there's a discourse that, in a sense, this is payment to help poor people get by. And he's saying, actually, everyone benefits from the welfare state. You know, so if you're better off, you also benefit from subsidies, subsidies towards education. And it's it's mistaken to think that, um, in his words, I think he called about the welfare myth of them and us. You know, there's a kind of class of who benefits, and then the rest of us pay taxes to support those people. And I think he's absolutely right. I think that the post-Second World War welfare state in different countries is all about thinking about how we all benefit from some kind of public welfare provision. But I think there is a challenge that I'm not convinced these days that that is so straightforwardly the case. I think that in many countries you're finding elites who are now pretty distant from the welfare state. An example of this, a much discussed example, which I talk about a little bit about, is the composition of representatives of parliament, MPs in the UK context. But the same is true in the US or many countries. You know, if you go back 50, 60 years, and, and looked at the kinds of people who became members of parliament in Britain, you would have found a reasonable representation of manual workers, mostly in the Labour Party, who'd got into parliament through a trade union route. Um, if you look at the, the kind of people who are MPs, Labour, Conservative, whatever political party actually, they are now predominantly in, uh, come from middle-class privileged backgrounds. They, they don't come from people with historically poor backgrounds. And you're therefore getting much more of a kind of self-selecting small group of people who never really experienced difficulty and had to think about how they get by. So to me, that is kind of what is driving a lot of political debates, uh, not just in the UK, but in many so-called democracies, is a sense of much more insular, kind of echo chamber politics, in which um, people who are making decisions are not really engaged with people's daily lives on a routine basis. And I think that's creating a very divisive politics. Yeah. So, so I mean, maybe the way to look at it is that in, 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 in the West, that in the 19th century, there was a very cut-off, isolated, fantastically rich elite who had nothing to do with the lives of most people. That changed with the welfare state, but maybe the welfare state was just a blip. And we're, and we're, and we're now getting back to where we were. 
so that's exactly that's exactly the argument i try and push my my, my, my book has a subtitle the return of history so i use this phrase the weight of the past um, and it's partly a discussion and a reflection upon the arguments put forward by Thomas Piketty, the economist, a very famous economist, who wrote this really important work, which I refer to extensively in my book, about how we've seen this shift towards top incomes and wealth in recent decades. And, and it's pushing forward his argument, which is to say we are indeed returning to the world of the 19th century. Now, these days we are obsessed with you know, massive transformations in society, the role of artificial intelligence, you know, driverless cars. This is the kind of things we hear about in the media, as if we're living in this brand new world of dynamic, turbocharged capitalism and all that. Well, yes, yes, obviously, I mean, that those shifts are significant. But insofar as we are seeing the return of a kind of inherited class where people, increasing number of people, are expecting to get their uh, some degree of economic resources from their parents, from inheritance, that is really going back to the world of the Victorian aristocracy in those societies was deeply divisive, not democratic, and it does pose the challenge and the concern that we may be returning to those kind of pre-democratic norms. But I'm going to try once more on this issue of of what you know that the, the wealthy consists of, because uh, in the Victorian time you know, there, there were very very few very wealthy people, and today there are far more wealthy people. And I'm just wondering whether I mean, you could take one figure. I mean, it's, again, this is a British example, but 7% of British children are privately educated, which makes them from families who have really very significant wealth and income. And would you think the problem is with that 7%? Or would you broaden it out to the and again, we didn't have the precise number, but the, the, the far bigger number who are, let's say, owner occupiers of, of houses that may not be worth that much, but nonetheless, Houses which will be passed down. I'm trying to pin you down on which do you think is the bigger problem, that broader the, number I or the narrow the, number? The narrow number is the bigger problem, I think, mm. because they're the one. I mean, so I think the world of the super elite, you can afford private jets, um, and you know, that the, the, those kinds of fortunes are much fewer, and they're the ones who might have much more like to buy access and give donations to political parties and things. So we, you have to see what we need to be mindful of the bigger grouping. It's not an either-or thing, I think, but the bigger issue lies with the smaller group. And let's just move this on now to to class and i guess that means to cultural wealth and cultural matters which are outside of pure finances yeah how, how, i mean you, you you are a big specialist in this and you've done an awful lot of work on yeah. on class and i wonder if you could take us through some of the your thoughts about it in the uk but also more broadly in the west yeah so uh, uh, as you're saying Owen, you know I'm, i've been interested in the issue of class for many many years and I've I've always argued, not always, but I've been influenced very strongly by a French sociologist called Pierre Bourdieu, um, who, who wrote his very famous book called Distinction 40 years ago. Uh, his argument was, you know, when we think about, when we think about class, when we think about social divisions, it's not enough just to look at how much people earn. You know, it's not, it's not just an economic matter. It is an economic matter, to be sure. But there's more to it than that. So he's interested in what he calls cultural capital, cultural hierarchies the way in which um, certain kinds of education lead on to certain kinds of middle-class values and in, entitled values. And so I've been very influenced and, and by that approach. Where that leads to in terms of, so I think um, class is really important, but it's changed, it's, it's changed its nature. Uh, you know, in the UK, as in many uh, rich industrial nations or rich ex-industrial nations, we've thought about class 
as a distinction between manual and non-manual, you know, middle class, non-manual, office workers, white collar workers versus people who work with their hands, manual workers, people who get a wage, which is working class. And then we might we might also distinguish um, various kinds of upper classes. I mean, then we may even qualify it a bit and talk about lower, the lower middle class. But we've, we're fixated upon these big classes, you know, the middle class and the working class, defined in terms of occupations predominantly. My argument is to say that world of the kind of fundamental divide between middle and working class isn't really where things are at now. Really, class is much more to do with the assets you can mobilize. So this is kind of where my argument is saying we ask where we've got to take the issue of your capital, your asset. Some of that is the things we've been talking about so far, your wealth assets, you know, how much property do you own? So our discussion about elites versus the middle class is exactly about that. So what makes you middle class these days isn't necessarily the job you do. It is your relationship to property, to assets, but then also uh, linked into that, the, the role of cultural capital is creating a group of people who have the, have the you know, cultural um, entitlement, feelings of entitlement, which gives them a sense of being superior to other people. So it's the, it's the overlap, it's the intersection between um, cultural and economic capital, which is crucial. But those are not, you know, because again, our old fashioned way of thinking about classes is, is a binary, you know, middle class versus working class, you're on one side of those divides or other. Once we start talking about cultural capital and economic capital, it's much more complex, particularly in the middle layers. People themselves are often much more ambivalent about where they fit in the class class divide than they used to be. Now then, you mentioned already that at, at the end of the book, you have a sort of what is to be done uh, section and uh, there are a number of points you make. So I thought I might just use them as prompts and just ask you to talk a bit about those ideas. And, and the first is reviving radicalism. What do you mean by that? Yes, it goes back to what I was saying a few minutes ago about are we going back to the Victorian period? You know, are we going back to the world of the aristocracy? And that made me think about, well, what was the nature of politics in that period of time too? And I'm, you know, very influenced by a very famous Marxist historian, E.P. Thompson, who wrote this very famous book called The Making of the English Working Class, where he was looking at radical politics in the first part of the 19th century. The, the conventional, you know, traditional historiography is that forms of radicalism were very moralistic, often very um, abstract, and they got eclipsed by socialist politics in the later part, from the later part of the 19th century. But I, 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 my argument is actually that radical tradition is, was very fixated upon notions of corruption. So there was a whole discourse around what was called old corruption in England and how people pulled strings and how the wealthy looked after each other and how there was a very condescending attitude towards people without resources. And so rather than this kind of um, endemic structural conflicts on the political left between are you are you a certain kind of socialist? Are you a liberal? I want I, I, I to kind of invoke this notion of radicalism as a, as a means of trying to encourage a more inclusive approach to thinking about these issues, which would allow certain visions of a liberal tradition to be reconciled with the socialist tradition. OK, can you be more specific about what that might look like then? So I think, you know, um, and indeed we've seen examples of that in the, in the case of uh, recent, the recent Conservative government, making the issue of corruption and public standards central to our political debate. Uh, not seeing them as kind of just to do with particular individuals, but um, obviously they are to do with particular individuals, but thinking absolutely about how do people abuse public life through right. donations yeah. or through indirect... Yeah. I mean, I can see, I can see that, that that's something everyone can agree on, uh, so it has that advantage. But but 
Does it force change, actually, of the kind you're talking about? Well, give, I'll give you another example. I say part, of the, part of this argument is, too, is also about defending the, public, the notion of a public sphere, the, the notion of a, of, a, of a public welfare state. Take the debate about, on the, about, about changes in the media in the UK and, the, and the, the role of the BBC, for instance, and discussion about do we still need licence fee? Can we rely upon Netflix and Sky and all that sort of stuff? And my argument would be to say, we, so defending some notion of public broadcasting or you know, public services in terms of the NHS is crucial for how we work together as a collective grouping and emphasising that, that um, certain services are not, are not just available to people who have the money to pay for it. But I would see that as kind of go, harking back to a radical tradition of thinking about democratic rights, which are also social rights. Mm, maybe. Um, I, I sort of listening to you and thinking... Yeah, the most powerful thing you said is that you take 5% of people's wealth over a million pounds and you're raising proper money. Did you say 260 billion or something? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, which is a yes. fantastic sum. And, yes. and I mean, that seems to, I mean, that's radical. Saving the BBC yes. isn't, isn't terribly. <laughs> no, I agree. So, I agree. so as, as I was saying earlier, the wealth tax, I think, is an absolutely crucial thing. And I think making taxation, bringing that into, that, into the centre of debates about how we... Mm. Is important. End of economic growth models is the second of your sort of five-point plan. Yeah, well, we've seen that, haven't we? I mean, it's very interesting with the the brief Liz Truss government a few months ago and the thing about we just need to bring back growth and she was talking about this anti-growth coalition. And there is a kind of default fallback as if, you know, if, if only we could get growth back into the economy, that our problems will begin to be resolved. This is where we need to link up with the climate crisis um, argument that we can't just appeal to growth in that way. And here, you know, I talk a lot about the links between um, the, the, the work of economists looking at shifts in income inequality or economic inequality. And we need to think about how we create fairer societies without necessarily just assuming we can do that by expanding the economy. There are limits, there are finite limits to how much we can actually grow uh, the GDP of particular countries. So we think we need to have a, we need to have a hard discussion about the, the balance between those things. Holding capital to account. Well, that goes back to the issue about wealth tax, I think, and about the yeah. the idea that we have an economy very much oriented around you know, shareholder value, and, and the acquisition of wealth is almost an end in itself. But recognizing that actually accumulating wealth, uh, allowing corporations to to do things under their you know, according to their priorities and according to their strategies has come to the social cost um, and we need to bear in mind what that is and we need to think seriously about the, the limits if you like to to, to, the, to the power of private property now you talk about redefining human well-being where, which you know is is, is challenging because most people would want to define it for themselves i guess so what, what do you mean by that it's trying to contest these economic notions of well-being in terms of you know income levels and those sort of metrics is saying we need to have a bigger debate about uh, uh, you know, what, what humans uh, need and want in their lives. Here I'm in debate with the um, economist Amartya Sen, who has this famous, what he calls, capabilities approach towards development. To, if we do understand economic development in the poor, poor countries, it's not enough just to kind of see that in terms of inc- the, the rise of income levels. We need to think too about people's people's own goals, people's values, and I kind of want to bring in questions about cultural fulfilment. What does it mean to lead a 
fulfilled life. You said, you know, people will define these things for themselves, but I think to see it as a kind of set of private tastes uh, is missing out on the need for kind of conversations about, you know, what, what activities are better than others. And I think that's, that needs a bit more thinking through. No, not really arguing that. I'm just saying that most people, rich or poor, would say that, you know, the most important thing is to have some more money. Well, that's, but that's what I'm, yeah, that is kind of what I'm contesting because I'm not sure it no, is no. necessary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure you're right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that, let's leave that. And, and so th- now there's a very interesting thought you've got at the end about the connection to all this and nationalism. Yes. So can you just tell us what you're thinking about that? Yeah, so, so um, I have this argument about we need, we need to think about certain kinds of national projects, and I, I use this term sustainable nationalism as a goal for us to think about. And the argument here is, is that often people who are said to be nationalist are sometimes seen on the political left as being on the political right, you know, and defending, you know, forms of xenophobia and jingoism. And I want to try and say, well, actually, if you think about many of the most progressive nations, and most, going back to our discussion about societies after the Second World War, many of them were committed very strongly to a project of national, nation building, if you like. And so rather than writing off people who are nationalists as kind of on the political right, we should be thinking about what is the space to claim a, a form of popular nationalism, which is not necessarily tied up with projects of you know, national militarism or xenophobia, and recognises that nations need to live live as a kind of community of nations, if you like, but doesn't. But also tries to think seriously about what does it mean to have a kind to be living in a nation together. Here, many of the best examples do come from smaller nations. You know, the obvious example are the Scandinavian. Nations very small, only a few million people living in them. Norway, you know, very very lucky, very privileged, has a huge oil, has earned huge money from its oil industry, which is put into a sovereign wealth fund. And the notion of that sovereign wealth fund means you begin to you can begin to have a collective discussion about how can we use that resource for the good. So I, I'm I'm trying to this is an argument with kind of certain voices on the left and saying let's not write off nationalism as such. Let's think about forms of nationalism which excite people which make people feel that they want to be included in, included in a kind of national society. Yeah, but what, what about the, the counter-argument that, you know, the way to generate wealth over, over history has been to trade? Uh, that is a massive generator of, 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 of uh, income and wealth. And, yeah. and that, you know, the European Union is, is the most successful project in this with peace and prosperity for its people. And that when you go down the nationalist road, you, you blow that apart. Yes, that's exactly where we, where the I think distinguishing something called sustainable nationalism is really important. I don't see the European Union as as superseding nations. I think what has happened within the European Union is exactly different kind of national cultures and national states think about how do we work together collectively. As you say, trade and the ease of trade is often a key part of that. So, um, yeah, so I, I yeah I think I think uh, forms of in, in interstate inter international collaboration are not are exactly in line with what I'm trying to argue for in terms of uh, sustainable nationalism. Just finally, looking looking to the future, uh, as we tend to in the last question, I'm afraid only in this yeah. in these interviews. Uh, yeah. I'm just I'm just thinking that you know you, you you've sort of outlined the problem, and you know, particularly with that that wealth tax idea, it's very striking. And you're, you're saying there's there's a solution amongst others, but I can't see any prospect whatsoever of that happening. I mean, and I I. I Take the point. Politics changes. Who knows? Yeah, things change fast. Trump showed that, but it just seems unimaginable 
that the elite in the West would give up that kind of wealth and that they've got the power not to do it. Yeah, I think that if you look at the, what's the political debate in many countries, the wealth tax is being discussed more than it has been in the past. So it was, has been discussed in recent US elections. The discussion in the UK, I mean, it certainly hasn't been taken up by the Labour Party as such, but it is being discussed much more. And I think, you know, we have to do more political work. But I think just to say it's never going to happen, forget it, isn't the right approach. We've got to think we need, you know, we need to address the the challenge of inequality. Um, the wealth tax isn't the only thing we can do, but it it, it will deliver a kind of the kind of de- degree of, of shift in resources which we do need to tackle the whole issues about welfare, the welfare state. So we we got to try and grasp it and see, and see how far we can get with it. And you know we shouldn't get we shouldn't also forget you know this this when you say the elite will try and resist it. Well, they will do, but I, I think actually but they they are small they are small in number. I think the more challenging group to try and win over are the, are the kind of more middle class groups and people who aspire to middle class status and owning their homes. You might be thinking, well, you know, we may be, may be wealthy one day. We don't want to lose our wealth. But I think it is to win this argument for saying, well, actually, yes, and we're not against wealth as such. We just want to make sure that the ownership of wealth and the acquisition of wealth is tied up with a, kind of a good society, a good national society. And we need to think about doing this in the collective interest. And let me just put to you the obvious counter-argument, the most, what would probably be the most heavily deployed counter-argument, that wealth generators need to have the incentive of owning wealth in order to create the growth that, help, that benefits everybody. Such as the degree of, you know, if you look at the wealth owned by Elon Musk, I mean, with so many hundreds of billions of pounds, there's got to be a limit to how much, in, how much incentive you need. Um, and I think there's a certain threshold, which is why I think having a threshold of, say, a million pounds is perfectly reasonable. I mean, I think I think the notion you've got to keep you've got to keep having all your wealth over a certain level. I can't see it's going to be much more of an incentive. Do you have an incentive to have two hundred billion pounds rather than hundred billion pounds? I doubt it, in terms of the psychology. So I think I think um, we can retain an incentive mechanism, but still have an effective wealth tax. I don't know you or I will ever know. <laughs> but thank you very much, <laughs> thank you. Uh, Pro- Professor Mike Savage. Thanks very much for thank talking you. us through your book. Thank you. Bye bye.